Hello, and welcome to another episode of Reading is Lit. I'm your host, Molly Bowers, and today we will be looking at the novel Red Queen by Victoria Aveyard through a psychoanalytic lens. So, let's begin. Okay, so Red Queen is the first book out of a series of four, and I really enjoyed reading it. I will admit this novel does share many elements with the other YA novels out there, but I think one thing that really sets this book apart from the others is the number of twists within it and also its characters. Aviard really knows how to capture your attention and keep it. The ending of this book was also really heartbreaking, which for me is one of the signs of a good book because it demonstrates that the author was able to draw you into the story. So before we begin to analyze Red Queen, I'm going to give you a brief summary of the novel. And just so you know, there are major spoilers ahead. The story begins by introducing us to our protagonist, Mayor Barrow. Mayor Barrow is born and raised in the Kingdom of Norta, which is a world divided by sharp class structures determined by the color of one's blood. The Silvers, who have silver blood, live lives full of riches and fame because they have supernatural abilities that make them nearly gods. The Reds, on the other hand, have red blood and live their lives in poverty. Mayor grows up in a red village called the Stilts, and she pickpockets others in order to support her family. Mayor lives with her mother, who disapproves of her stealing, her father, and her younger sister, Jisa, who has an actual job as an apprentice to a seamstress. Mayor additionally has three older brothers, Bree, Trammy, and Shade, but they are all absent because they were drafted into a war. When Mare's best friend, Killorn, is about to be drafted, she decides that she will do everything she can to prevent it from happening. She goes to find someone who will smuggle her and Killorn out of the stilts and meets Farley. Now, Farley claims to be an excellent smuggler and agrees to transport Mare and Killorn, but she first requires a payment of 2,000 crowns within the next two days. This amount is ridiculous, but Mare accepts Farley's offer anyway, deciding to steal the money. Mayor tells Jisa about her plan, and together they go to the nearby Silver Metropolis, since most Reds don't have any money. While there, a video is broadcasted throughout the city where, you guessed it, Farley claims credit for a terrorist attack on the Silvers on behalf of a group called the Scarlet Guard. The Scarlet Guard claims that they are working to advance the rights of Reds. Chaos breaks out all over the city, and while attempting to escape, Jisa's sewing hand is smashed by a Silver Guard. Failing that she has betrayed her family and ruined their true source of income, Mare sneaks off to a bar on the edges of the stilts. Instead of drinking, though, Mare steals from the patrons. The last person catches her, but instead of getting angry, he gives her a silver coin. Introducing himself as Cal, he explains that he works at the palace. In the morning, security officers and a royal servant show up at the Barrow House to escort Mare to the palace. Once there, Mare finds out that Cal arranged for her to have a job as a server. Mare's first task is to serve a large silver crowd at one of their events. There, Mare discovers that Cal is actually the crown prince of the Kingdom of Norta. She also discovers that she has silver-like abilities, being able to control electricity, even though her blood is still red. This causes the king and queen to announce to the Silvers that she is actually the long-lost daughter of an elite Silver family and betroths her to their second son, Maven. Yay! Go Team Maven. Mare is then thrown into the life of a Silver, constantly looking over her shoulder because she is sure that someone will betray her. 
She begins to form a bond with both Maven and Cal, but ultimately chooses Maven over Cal. Ooh. The two join the Scarlet Guard, but shortly afterwards, Maven reveals that he had been working with his mother, Queen Alara, the entire time. <laughs> they had been working to put Maven on the throne instead. Queen Alara then mind controls Cal to kill his father, which results in both him and Mare being thrown into jail. On the date of their execution, they go into the arena fully prepared to die, but the Scarlet Guard saves them at the last minute. The book concludes with Mare and Cal not being able to trust each other, but both having the same goal, to kill Maven. So, the book does not end in favor of Team Maven, unfortunately. But moving on, there are multiple ways to analyze a novel using the psychoanalytic theory. We will specifically look at how the two main characters' behaviors can be explained by psychoanalytic concepts. So here is a short background on psychoanalytic criticism. Signum Freud is credited with founding psychoanalysis, and he divided the mind into three different parts, the ego, the superego, and the id. The ego is one's sense of oneself or their reality principle. It is whatever one believes themselves to be. The superego is the ego ideal or one's moral guardian. It is the internalized moral code one has adopted for themselves. So for example, one's religious beliefs or rules instilled by their guardians are part of their superego. Last, there is the id, which is defined as the pleasure principle. The id is in charge of one's unconscious urges, desires, and deep-seated fears. Um, and it is all selfishness, having no concern for the effects it might have on the community. So the superego keeps the id in check, otherwise that would be one chaotic world. According to Freud, one's behavior is determined by how they deal with their unconscious desires, fears, and needs. The human's mind is designed to promote pleasure and avoid pain, and in order to protect itself and promote pleasure, the id has a number of coping mechanisms. So these are a few examples. Selective perception is only hearing and seeing what one feels that they are able to handle. Displacement is when one takes their fear, frustration, or anger out on someone else less threatening. Regression is temporarily returning to a previous state of mind, carrying one away from a current situation. Disassociation is where one separates a negative action or behavior from their identity. So, for example, someone who smokes cigarettes but does not consider themselves a smoker. And, according to Freud, the four most common fears are the fear of intimacy, the belief that emotional closeness will hurt or destroy one's identity, so one is only able to remain safe by keeping a distance from others, the fear of abandonment, the belief that one's family and friends will abandon them or don't really care about them, the fear of betrayal, the belief that no one can be trusted, a low self-esteem, the belief that one is inferior to others and therefore doesn't deserve any of life's rewards. Freud claims that one's fear of death is tied to all of their other fears. All of those fears are reminders that one is mortal, so therefore one tries to avoid those fears because they remind them of their ultimate fear, death. Lastly, Freud explained that the death drive is a tendency where, where one ironically risks death in order to feel more alive to explain why some people engage in risky or self-destructive behavior.
we are going to start by analyzing our protagonist, Mare Barrow. Mare is not the typical heroine that you might find in other novels. She's a very prickly personality and many flaws. It is also clear to see that Mare has a dark side, so since Red Queen is told from her perspective, at times I almost felt like I was inside the mind of the villain instead of the protagonist. The first passage I'm going to read is when Mare and Cal are about to enter the arena. As we enter, I see we're not the only ones waiting to die. Lucas. A guard holds his arm, but Lucas still manages to glance over his shoulder. His face is full of bruises, and he looks paler than before, like he hasn't seen the sun in days. It's probably true. Mare. Just the way he says my name makes me cringe. He's another one I've betrayed, using him like I used Cal, Julian, the Colonel, like I tried to use Maven. I was wondering when I'd see you again. I'm so sorry. I go to my grave apologizing, and it still won't be enough. They told me you were with your family, that you were safe, or else... Or else what? He asks slowly. I'm nothing to you. Just something to be used and cast aside. The accusation cuts like a knife. I'm sorry, but it had to be done. The queen made me remember. <laughs> Made. There's pain in his voice. Don't apologize, because you don't mean it. I want to embrace him, to show this was not what I wanted. I do, I swear, Lucas. His Majesty, Maven of House Calor and House Mirandas, the King of Norta, Flame of the North. The cry rings out in their arena, echoing down to us through the gate. The accompanying cheers make me cringe, and Lucas flinches. His end is near. Would you do it again? His words sting sharply. Would you risk me for your terrorist friends again? I would. I don't say it out loud, but Lucas sees my answer in my eyes. I kept your secret. It's worse than any insult he could throw at me. The knowledge that he protected me, even though I didn't deserve it, gnaws at my core. But now I know you're not different, not anymore, he continues, almost spitting. You're the same as all the rest. Heartless, selfish, cold. Just like us. They taught you well. Then he turns, facing the gate again. He wants no more words from me. I want to go to him to try and explain, but a guard holds me back. There's nothing more for me to do but stand tall and wait for our doom. One of the first things I noticed in this passage was Mira's lack of self-esteem. She says, I go to my grave apologizing and it still won't be enough. The second half of the sentence is a loaded statement. It demonstrates how Mare has never felt that she's been enough. This stems from her childhood. Always living in the shadow of her younger sister, Mare believes that she will never be as pretty, intelligent, or as talented as Jisa. The fact that Jisa also has a real job while Mare had to depend on stealing from others contributes to Mare's low self-esteem. This low self-esteem leads Mare into believing that she will never be enough and that she doesn't deserve what is given to her, for example, the food, clothing, money, or the people's kindness that she receives once at the palace. Another behavior of Maris that I noticed in this passage was her habit of disassociation. Now, I actually don't think Mare completely disassociated her behavior from her concept of herself. In the sentence, he's another one I've betrayed, using him like I used Cal, Julian, the Colonel, like I tried to use Maven, the reader can see that Mare does admit to using others. She identifies a part of herself as a traitor, but she still doesn't accept the fact that she acted like a silver. When Lucas says, you're the same as all the rest, heartless, selfish, cold, just like us, she refuses to believe it. Mary says that this was not what I wanted and tries to explain her behavior to Lucas. She claims that the circumstances forced her to betray others. Mary cannot accept the fact that she now acts like a silver. The people who she has hated since 
her childhood, but she does accept the fact that part of her identity is now defined as a traitor. Therefore, Mare exhibits a more complex form of disassociation by using her negative behavior to identify part of herself while still using that same behavior to ignore a different part of herself. The last significant psychological concept that can be seen in this passage is the presence of Mare's fear of betrayal. Throughout the novel, the phrase, anyone can betray anyone, is repeated. Mare does not trust anyone except for her family members. This distrust results in Mare betraying everyone else. When Lucas asks if she would do it again, referring to when she used him to help her friends escape and then later erased his memory, she doesn't even need to say it out loud. They both know she would repeat it. She attempts to use the other characters as pawns in her plan to overthrow the Silvers before they can use her. In the second passage, Mare and Cal are finally in the arena fighting for their lives against five other Silvers. Throughout the fight, Mare's powers had been suppressed by Arvin, another Silver, but after killing him, her powers are finally released. I can taste red blood in my mouth, sharp and metallic and strangely wonderful. I spit it out for all to see. Overhead, the blue sky darkens through the shielded dome. Black clouds gather, heavy and full with rain. The storm is coming. You said you'd kill me if I ever got in your way. It feels so good to throw her words back in her face. Here's your chance. Her chest rises and falls, heaving with each breath. She's tired, she's wounded, and the steel behind her eyes is almost gone, giving way to fear. She lunges, and I move to block her attack, but it never comes. Instead, she runs. She runs from me, sprinting at the closest gate she can find. I pound after her, running to hunt her down, but Cal's roar of frustration stops me in my tracks. Osanos is on his feet again, dueling with renewed strength while Ptolemus dances around them, looking for his opening. Cal is no good against nymphs, not with his fire. I remember how easily bested Maven was in his own training so long ago. My hand closes around the nymph's wrist, shocking him through his skin, forcing him to turn his anger on me. The water feels like a hammer, knocking me backward into the sand. It crashes and crashes, making it impossible to breathe. For the first time since I entered the arena, the cold hand of fear clenches around my heart. Now that we have a chance of winning, of living, I'm so afraid to lose. My lungs scream for air, and I can't help but open my mouth, letting the water choke me. It stings like fire, like death. The tiniest spark runs through me, and it's enough, shocking through the water and up into Osanos. He yelps, jumping back long enough to let me scramble free, slipping through the wet sand. Air se sears my lungs as I gasp for breath, but there's no time to enjoy it. Osanos is on me again. This time, his hands are around my neck, holding me under the swirling foot of water. But I'm ready for him. The fool is stupid enough to touch me, to put his skin against mine. When I let the lightning go, shocking through flesh and water, he screams like a boiling tea kettle and flops backwards. As the water falls away, draining into the sand, I know he's truly dead. When I rise, soaking wet, shaking with adrenaline, fear, strength, my eyes fly to Cal. He's slashed and bruised, bleeding all over, but his arms rage with bright red fire, and Ptolemus cowers at his feet. He raises his hands in defeat, begging for mercy. Kill him, Cal, I snarl, wanting to see, see him bleed. Above us, the lightning shield pulses again, surging with my anger. If only it was Evangeline. If only I could do it myself. He tried to kill us. Kill him.
This passage is when Maris Id overtakes the superego and the reader is really able to see her dark side. Mare describes, overhead, the blue sky darkens through the shielded dome. Black clouds gather, heavy and full with rain. The storm is coming. The use of a dark and negative diction sets an ominous mood for the passage. When the text says, the storm is coming, it is really referring to the fact that Mare's id has finally gained control and is now making its way to dominate her actions. Even Evangeline, Mare's enemy, runs away from Mare, realizing that she is unstoppable when her id is in control. I think that what causes Mare to snap is all of the events leading up to that point, even including her childhood. Just to list off some of these factors, having to live in Jesus' shadow, growing up in poverty, having the Silvers constantly look down upon her, being oppressed and discriminated against, being betrayed by Maven, and now fighting for her life, all of these just caused Mare to break. In the passage, Mare also exhibits the behavior of displacement. She first attempts to kill Evangeline, but then is successful in killing Osanos. Seeing Cal standing over Ptolemus, she says, Kill him, Cal, I snarl, wanting to see him bleed. Above us, the lightning shield pulses again, surging with my anger. If only it was Evangeline. If only I could do it myself. He tried to kill us, kill him. After bottling up all of her emotions for so long, Mare allowed her resentment and fear to build up until it finally exploded and caused her to take out all of her, that frustration and anger on others. The last psychological concept that is evident in this passage is Mare's obsession with death. Her relationship with death is a bit more complicated due to the fact that she has red blood. Mare says, I can taste red blood in my mouth, sharp and metallic and strangely wonderful. I spit it out for all to see. The taste of her red blood is a reminder of her mortality, which most people fear, but Mare actually describes it as strangely wonderful. She embraces her mortality due to the fact that being mortal ironically makes her stronger than the Silvers. Since she is red blood but still has powers that make her even stronger than the Silvers, she feels closer to immortality than they do, disproving the belief that reds are weaker than Silvers. At the same time, Mare fears her mortality. She says, For the first time since I entered the arena, the cold hand of fear clenches around my heart. Now that we have a chance of winning, of living, I'm so afraid to lose. This passage demonstrates how all of Mare's psychological behaviors and fears still lead back to her fear of death. Last, the reader can see Mare's death drive. She describes, It stings like fire, like death. The tiniest spark runs through me, and it's enough. Only after experiencing a near-death experience does Mare's power activate and save her. And now we will take a short break. Coming up, we will analyze Maven. This podcast is sponsored by Blood Dye. Have you ever wanted to change the color of your blood but didn't want to spend thousands of dollars on a dangerous procedure? Well now, you no longer have to worry! Introducing Blood Dye, the safe, easy, and delicious drink that changes the color of your blood within the hour. All you need to do is mix one tablespoon of your chosen color of blood dye into eight ounces of water and drink it down. Then, just wait an hour for the special scientific and safe ions to dissolve into your blood and voila! A beautiful new color of blood, perfect for Halloween or a crazy night out in the town. Blood dye is offered in a range of beautiful colors including orange, yellow, green, purple, and pink. Get yours today for just $49.99 or for just an extra $20, buy the Elite Silver Bottle of Blood Dye. Order yours by calling 1-800-425-7852. If you order within the first 15 minutes, you get a second bottle of blood dye for free. Again, that's 1-800-425-7852. Blood dye is not responsible for any side effects. 
Welcome back. And wow, Mare really could have used some of that blood dye. So now we are going to analyze Maven. I'd have to say that Maven is my favorite character despite most of his behavior being fake throughout the book, or so he claims. He's just so charming and still has a childlike innocence about him. In addition, Maven is also a very puzzling character for me. I think he's even more complex and harder to analyze than Mare. In this passage, Maven confronts Mare and Cal in their prison cell. I was never yours and you were never mine, Maven, I snarl, and not because of him either. I thought you were perfect. I thought you were strong and brave and good. I thought you were better than him. Better than Cal. Those are words Maven thought no one would ever say. He flinches, and for a second, I can see the boy I used to know. A boy that doesn't exist. He reaches out a hand, grabbing at me between the bars. When his fingers close over the bare skin of my wrist, I feel nothing but repulsion. He holds me tight, like I'm some kind of lifeline. Something has snapped in him, revealing a desperate child, a pathetic, hopeless thing trying to hold on to his favorite toy. I can save you. The words make my skin crawl. Your father loved you, Maven. You didn't see it, but he did. A lie. He loved you, and you killed him. The words come faster, spilling like blood from a vein. Your brother loved you, and you made him a murderer. I loved you. I trusted you. I needed you. And now I'm going to die for it. I am king. You will live if I want you to. I will make it so. You mean if you lie? One day your lies will strangle you, King Maven. My only regret is I won't be alive to see it. And then it's my turn to grab him. I pull with all my strength, making him stumble against the bars. My knuckles connect with his cheek, and he yelps away like a kicked dog. I will never make the mistake of loving you ever again. To my dismay, he recovers quickly and smooths his hair. So you choose him? That's all this ever was. Jealousy, rivalry, also Shadow could defeat the flame. The first behavior one can see in Maven in this passage is selective perception. When Mare tells Maven that she actually thought that he was better than Cal, he immediately denies it, calling it a lie. He does the same thing when Mare says that his father loved him, that Cal loved him, that she loved him. Maven denies all of her statements. This demonstrates how Maven is only able to perceive what he feels he can handle. As soon as he hears about all of the people who loved him, he pretends that it isn't true because he can't handle the truth. If those things were true, then Maven would have realized that he just ruined his entire life by killing his father and severing his relationships with Mare and Cal. In this passage, the reader can also see Maven's habit of regression. Mare says he flinches and for a second I can see the boy I used to know. Mare even makes a direct reference to a childlike behavior, saying he holds me tight like I'm some kind of lifeline. Something has snapped in him, revealing a desperate child, a pathetic, hopeless thing trying to hold on to his favorite toy. During their exchange, Maven reverts to a form of childlike behavior in order to attempt to completely avoid facing his mistakes. This behavior makes the reader wonder if Maven has truly grown up or if he is still a little boy at heart just used to hiding behind his mother. Additionally, this passage reveals Maven's sense of low self-esteem and his fear of intimacy and betrayal. Similar to Mare, for his entire life, Maven has lived in the shadows of his older brother, Cal. Knowing that his father in the kingdom loved Cal more, and that Cal was more talented than him, caused resentment and anger to build up in Maven, too. This causes him to have a low self-esteem, where part of him believes that it is impossible for people to love him because he is simply not good enough. Maven also refused to allow himself to become close to Mare, demonstrating his fear of intimacy and betrayal. 
Mira says, to my dismay, he recovers quickly and smooths his hair. So you choose him? That's all this ever was. Jealousy, rivalry. Instead of forming a connection with Mare, he only used her to overthrow his father and brother. His fear of becoming too close to others results in him, like Mare, betraying others before they can betray him. In this last passage, Maven and Mare are saying their goodbyes. I'll make the other scream for you, Mare, every last one. Not just your parents, not just your siblings, but every single one like you. I'm going to find them, and they will die with you in their thoughts, knowing this is the fate you have brought them. I am the king, and you could have been my red queen. Now you are nothing. I don't bother to brush away the tears coursing down my cheeks. It's no use anymore. Maven enjoys the sight of me broken and sucks on his teeth like he wants to taste me. Goodbye, Maven. I wish there was more to, I could say, but there are no words for his evil. He knows what he is, and, worst of all, he likes it. He dips his head, almost bowing to the pair of us. Cal doesn't bother to look and grips the bar instead, wearing at the metal like it's Maven's neck. Goodbye, Mare. The smirk is gone, and to my surprise, his eyes look wet. He hesitates, not wanting to go. It's like he suddenly understood what he's done and, what, and what's about to happen to all of us. I told you to hide your heart once. You should have listened. How dare he? I have three older brothers, so when I spit at Maven, my aim is perfect, hitting him square in the eye. He turns quickly, almost running from the pair of us. Again, the reader can see his habit of regression. Throughout the passage, Maven maintains a childlike behavior. He says, and this, for me, was the most heartbreaking moment in the entire book. I am the king, and you could have been my red queen. Now you are nothing. This really sounds a lot like something a child would say. Additionally, Maven ends up running away from them, further contributing to his childlike behavior. The passage also demonstrates Maven's ultimate fear of death. He says he knows what he is and, worst of all, he likes it. Maven's fear of death, like Mare's, can explain all of his actions up to this point. He believes that being evil, having power, and using that power to hurt others while also refusing to become attached to anyone else makes him stronger and closer to immortality. Now, the main reason why I actually chose to include this passage is because it truly shows how complex of a character Maven is. If I'm being completely honest, I don't know if his behavior throughout the book was authentic or not. I find it hard to believe that he was faking his personality and behavior his entire life, and these passages point to the conclusion that he is just a good person in a bad situation. Mare describes, the smirk is gone, and, to my surprise, his eyes look wet. He hesitates, not wanting to go. It's like he's suddenly understood what he's done and what's about to happen to all of us. I told you to hide your heart once. You should have listened. In the two passages I included, the reader can see that Maven seems to be having an internal battle with himself. He wants to see Mir die, but at the same time, he keeps offering her chances to save herself. He is sad that he is going to kill her and still leaves her with some advice, well, sort of advice. During his entire life, his mother could have been controlling his actions, whom I know for sure is evil. Or I could be wrong and he could truly just be another evil person. I guess we won't know until the end of the series. But I just wanted to add for the record though that I am still Team Maven. Even though he betrayed almost his entire family, I believe that he is still a good person and that there is a way for him to redeem himself.
believe that Red Queen really exemplifies the idea that each person has a bit of good and a bit of bad in them. No one is perfect, and no one is 100% evil, either. This is a good lesson to keep in the back of your mind not only to help prevent you from oversimplifying characters in books, but also from oversimplifying real-life events and people. This lesson provides one with hope and inspiration. You just need to look to find the good in everyone and everything, because it will always be there. Thank you so much for listening in on this episode of Reading is Lit. Once again, I'm your host, Molly Bowers, and I hope you join us next week. Have a good night, and thank you. Thank you.